You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. to another episode of Regeneration Rising. I am Taylor Molia, the New Agrarian Program Colorado Manager. Today, my guest is Katie Roberts. She is a second-year apprentice and the apprentice coordinator at 4L Grazing at the Farrell Ranch in Beaumont, Kansas. We, Katie and I had a, an, an amazing conversation. And to be honest, we got really real really quickly, which is was a blast and super interesting and I could talk to her forever. We got into mental health, um, how to take care of yourself during an apprenticeship, sort of those ups and downs, and also just the really juicy, wonderful philosophies behind the Feral Ranch. Um, so thank you so much for tuning in today and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us, first of all, tell us where you're calling in from today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm calling in from, I'm not actually sure who coined this term. There is apparently some debate about it, but what has been called by several people as the middle of everywhere, not to be, not to be confused with the middle of nowhere, but the middle of everywhere, which is uh, Beaumont, Kansas, um, in the, uh, the lovely Flint, the Flint Hills of Kansas. More specifically, though, I'm calling from Coral Grazing slash the Feral Ranch. Right on. So yeah, tell us how you tell us how you ended up there. Just if you wouldn't mind. I mean, it can be brief, but I would love to hear sort of where you came from, uh, a little bit about your background, and how you ended up in Beaumont, Kansas. Yeah, well, I'll start at the beginning. I am originally um, from Southern California. Um, I'm from Orange, Orange County, the OC, but I grew up basically next to some of the very last orange trees in Orange County before everything just became houses. So I watched that very, my early childhood, I watched that very end of that transition of that going from, you know, mostly like orange trees, strawberry farms into just solid houses. I was a weird kid. You know, my, my parents are very both you know, very white collar. Um, most people in my family are. And I was just always, you know, eating, uh, you know, plants that grew out of cracks in the concrete or bringing snails into the house to be my friend. And from the time that I was a little kid, if we were driving anywhere, uh, I just loved animals. And people, you know, would say to me like, oh, Katie, look, a cow. Oh, Katie, look, a horse. So um, yeah, my family likes to joke that they don't they don't really know where I came from. But I have a complicated relationship with where I grew up. I think it taught me a lot more about what I didn't want than what I did. And like I said, I was a, a weird kid to start with. You know, I was a, a chubby queer kid with a lazy eye. You know, I was not cool. And I struggled a lot as a young person. I struggled with my health, I was covered in terrible eczema, like all over my body, like the gastro, gastro issues often on my whole life. But, you know, my whole sort of like teen identity was just about leaving Southern California. Like that was the whole, 
goal. And I hadn't really thought much past that. I did that. I went to college up in Oregon, did the whole liberal arts, small college thing. I got a degree in uh, cultural anthropology, which, you know, a lot of people will joke like highly unrelated. And, and yes, probably true. But I actually really appreciate the sort of like uh, lens it's given me onto the world. The sort of thing that, you know, every Anthro 101 professor likes to say is, you know, that anthropology is about making the strange unusual and the usual strange. And I feel like I kind of dance with that every day in different ways. So I don't regret that time. But yeah. And I met my partner a couple months before I graduated. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like I said, I hadn't really thought past that at all. So I think one person told me once I was good with people. So I started working with youth. I was an intern um, at a, a leadership camp for Native youth one summer. I ran a after-school program for elementary school-aged kids and a teen youth group. And I actually really loved working with young people. I really loved that. I had a woman who had this amazing creamery, Katie Miston. It was a full-circle creamery. And she even had met her through some work he'd done with the Salem Food Co-op in Oregon. And I had her come do a thing where she taught the kids about how to make cheese. And she was, you know, and I was talking to all these parents afterwards and, you know, she brought samples and I was just really excited about her cheese and it was showing. And she said to me, she's like, would you like a job? Would you, would you like to come work for me? And I didn't think she was serious, but I was really hoping she was. I was only working part-time. And so she ended up having me go and sell for her at the farmer's market some, which was a really interesting thing to kind of see the local food market play out. And I got to make some cheese with her and her husband. I was their only employee, so I did a little bit of everything. They ended up shutting down, unfortunately. There's a lot of some things out of their control that happened. So I was trying... I had dipped my toe kind of in that world of like making something like and making something solid and real and was still doing the youth thing part time and really enjoying it, but was really wanting to, to do that again in some way. So living in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, the wine industry is a really big thing there. And so I did this, took this wine gig that was literally supposed to last six weeks and just be kind of an in and out sort of thing and make a little extra cash, try a little something. And I ended up staying for nine months and quitting my other job and just really, really loving the work. Even just the fact that my day was different based on what was happening with the weather, like it, I, that really grounded me. Like it was like, or the seasons, you know, oh, things are slower in the winter and then they pick back up in the spring and in fall, we all hit the wall and work crazy long hours, you know, and get the job done or it's going to rain. So all the fruit needs to come in today, you know, like these sorts of just natural rhythms just made sense to me. It just made sense to me to live that way in some way. So let's see, a year after I graduated from college, um, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so I was back and forth to California a lot. I, re I refused to completely move back there, but I, I did everything but basically and, you know, was back as much as I could be to be helpful and spend time with both my parents. And then I was, you know, somewhere in all of that pre-2017, I think I was working at a restaurant in downtown Salem and I was living in this little tiny studio apartment and Ethan and I were sitting on the couch, I think in some kind of YouTube rabbit hole. And we ended up watching, he's got a, Ethan's got a permaculture background. So he was familiar with Jeff Lawton and Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert Project and Wadi Room. And we were watching this video and my mind was completely blown. 
that really clicked that that really sparked something in me and i think on the and then the same sort of youtube rabbit hole that we were on we ended up watching the very famous alan savory ted talk and i turned to ethan and i said this is literally the most important work we could do this is what i want to do and he he basically said uh don't don't yank my chain are you serious because if you're in i'm in and i said yeah no this is it this is what i want to do So I spent a little more time in the wine industry after that and like got very interested in what might be what might be possible there in uh, 20, the end of 2017, just as I was wrapping up a harvest gig, my dad dies, um, you know, we deal with all that. And, you know, the whole sort of grief rigmarole and my I turned to Ethan and I I said well I feel like I have two options I feel like I can stay here and drink for a year or I can go do something and I and Ethan said well let's go do something and I said okay probably the better choice all in all but honestly at that point that's just the headspace I was in either was fine (laughs) you know and so yeah and I said, I think I'd like to travel. And I'd been familiar with this concept because a lot of people I'd worked with had done it. But basically, hemisphere hopping is what people call it, where, again, the wine stuff, you follow the work. In the southern hemisphere, their seasons are opposite. So people will actually, I mean, you can really rack up some experience and some time if you're, you know, on on the job, if you're willing to travel. So a mentor of mine, Knew a guy who ran a winery in Marlboro, Marlboro, New Zealand. So I took a took a gig there, and I was there for about three months. And so at the end of that, so you know, we'd become familiar with the savory work, savory's work, um, and the holistic management framework. And so I knew about a bit about grazing from that. So while we were in New Zealand, we were like, oh, we're gonna, you know, just pop around and meet some of the folks that are doing this here, and just kind of talk to folks and. We went and visited a couple, mostly sheep producers down in uh, central Otago and same thing. I just like, it apparently takes, it takes me a while to learn things, but things that I just, I hit these moments where things click, you know, and like, I just, that, that clicked into place for me. I was just like, nope, this is what we're doing. Like, I, like, I have appreciated my time in wine. I've learned so much. I'm so grateful for it, but no, I want to be like on big landscapes with animals. And I want to, I want to be doing the work that way. Went to Australia for the last about nine months of the trip and did a lot of woofing mostly. And then we, we came back not too long before COVID and started. And, you know, I think travel can be a really, really amazing thing, but I also think travel can be a way to run from yourself at a certain juncture. And I think at a certain point between all the back and forth and the working seasonally and my dad being sick and all this stuff that had happened, I had missed some warning signs in my mental health and like how that was doing. You know, I had spent all this, I skipped over this slightly, but I'd spent all this energy, like trying to like eat a certain way and do certain things for my skin and my eczema and like all these gastro issues I'd had. And I'd actually at this point made a lot of progress, like, but yeah, my mental health was something I had just not really addressed. I finally like was forced to forced to reconcile with it. And I think that the pause of, you know, getting back from this trip, being pretty broke from having taken this trip and not exactly knowing, knowing that I wanted to do something with grazing, but not knowing exactly what it looked like forced me to kind of really sit with this stuff for the first time. So, you know, by the time I got help, I waited way too long. By the time I went and got help, I was having like these crippling panic attacks two to three nights a week. I was dealing with a lot of anger. I was drinking too much. I mean, it was just, I was a hot mess. It wasn't cute. 
So I started what's called DBT therapy, and I did that for a year. I'll skip the technical definition if anyone wants to Google it. But what it what it was for me was basically a way to stop like talking so much about like things that had happened or the past or you know why do I think I am this way and just be the way that I wanted to be and do the things I wanted to do. It's really about giving you skills to like the the sort of thing people say in that vernacular is to live a life worth living. And it's about giving you skills to do that, whatever that looks like for you. And you know, one of the kind of like holistic management, DBT has this like, like the four key insights in holistic management, DBT has these assumptions, several of them. And one that's really stuck with me, and I think really is applicable to the work that we're trying to do now is, you know, everyone is doing the best they can, but we all need to be doing better. And that was really something, you know, that I had to tell myself every day. And it was hard. It was very hard to take that time. I felt very selfish doing it. I actually, I sent an email to a mentor um, of ours, you know, and I think I literally said to her something like, there's 60 years of topsoil left and I have to spend a year working on myself. What is this shit? You know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, Yeah, I can see that because you have such an urgency on one end, but you you can't really do that unless you, unless you just slow down and, and take care of yourself first. You know, that's so, wow, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. Yeah. You know, I think I needed that dark night of the soul period. It's it sounds a little bit cheesy, but I think, you know, if we're going to really talk about regenerating land, we also need to talk about regenerating ourselves, whatever that means for everyone's specific situation. But then I think, you know, I reached a point after, you know, I hit I hit a point where I was ready to kind of get back into the work. I felt like I was ready to like reemerge back into the world. And it was, you know, just about the time that the NAP applications were were due. And so yeah, I applied to the NAP program um, through the Kavira Coalition and went and did an in-person interview at Richard's Ranch. Big, big shout out to them and didn't get the job, was totally crushed. And Carrie Richards, you know, and I feel I owe her a great Um, debt of gratitude, sent an email to Lee Ritchie, who runs the NAP program and said, Hey, we think Katie's great, blah, blah. Do you know of any other opportunities for her this season? And I got hooked up with Pete and John. And so it was just like an instant match. Like I think at that point, so that was the other thing too, is Ethan and I were going to be he didn't feel like he was in a place yet to kind of get back out there. He was going through his own kind of dark night of the soul thing. And but by the time the the opportunity came up, you know, long after the NAP deadline, he felt like he was ready to kind of get back out. So we had a separate interviews, we had a joint interview. And basically, it was, I believe, 10 days between when they offered us the apprenticeship here. And when we got in the car, I mean, we like, broke a lease through everything, <laughs> through everything in Ethan's parents' basement and just like hightailed it out of Portland. <laughs> wow. And and here you are. And how many, when, when was that, that you guys moved to the Feral Ranch? That would have been March of last year. That was mid-March of last year. Thanks for going through everything. It's like, you know, you've had so many different experiences. I kind of want to go back to your, your wine experience, which is really unique and really cool. Um, what did you think about sort of, we talked before about how it didn't really feel natural. Like it felt like a built system and that you kind of more wanted to see these sort of like wild systems and larger landscapes. Um, but what, 
tell us about your experience with like kind of overlapping with the sheep thing and like, what's your take on running sheep and vineyards? It seems like an absolute dream, but it's like, there's probably a reason people, not everybody's doing it. So yeah. Like, can you tell us about what were some of the challenges? What were some of the awesome parts of it? And kind of what is your general take? I worked, so I only worked one place that had sheep and I, so if anyone is interested in running sheep and vineyards, I'd recommend looking into the work of Kelly Mulville. He um, has been a big innovator um, in the sort of animal integrated vineyards. The biggest thing with that, you know, so there's certain times of the year where you really, you could theoretically run sheep and vineyards if you trained your wires correctly. Kelly Mulville is basically designing vineyards with animal integration in mind. So in theory, you could be running animals through there all year without having to do like, and we did because we were this place that we worked at, we were running sheep during butt break, which is like absolutely when people tell you not to do it. But the guy we worked for was willing to try. We were doing some crazy things with electric wires to keep them from eating buds and they still ended up eating buds. (laughs) Once the first one figured it out, it was game over. But if you have you know, vines that are trained higher. And I think there's some other stuff he does too, but I know he does train them higher, which honestly, like the little bit of time I've spent actually working in vineyards, would be a lot easier on your back to have it trained a little higher too. They're trained pretty low right now, the standard sort of setup. But my biggest thing with sheep and vineyards is I think it's like managing animals in any landscape. They need to be managed, whether you're doing that through herding types, different types of stockmanship, or with electric fencing, however you want to do it. If you just throw sheep out into a vineyard and just leave them there, you're going to be overgrazing. You're going to be undergrazing. I think anyone who just, you know, and I'm not going to make any friends saying this, but I think anyone who, you know, throws sheep out into a vineyard and calls themselves regenerative, it's just more greenwashing, you know? So I, I struggle when I see that specifically. But I will say, you know, having animals out there, you are getting some, regardless of how you manage them, you're getting additional fertilizer, you know, you're theoretically mowing less, you know, you might even be putting in some cover crops that's becoming a lot more popular in the vineyard world. Yeah, no, and there, I I worked for people, you know, who were doing it correctly, for sure. But I think it's like anything else where it's not the, you know, people say it's not the cow, it's not the how it's not the sheep, it's it's how you do the sheep is that how much of an impact you're going to make. And sort of like, what, what are your assets and what, what can you do and what can't you do? And if your vines are, if you've got this trellis system that's been there for years and years and it's just not going to work, then maybe you got to find another option. But yeah, that just seems like a, a really cool integration and possibly a really cool sort of like custom um, partnership idea. And I was wondering, do people do that in on the West Coast and or in Australia when you were working down there or New Zealand? Like, do, do young people or anyone really have custom grazing operations where they come in the vineyards and then they leave? You know, I haven't seen that specifically. I've actually, it's funny you say that I've had that exact thought and I was actually just, I was just talking with our new first year apprentice about it today. I've had that exact thought that I think that would be an awesome business idea if someone's not already doing it. You know, my, the last time I was working in Oregon was 2017 and like in wine, in wine world, you know, a lot happens in five years. So it's very possible someone's doing it now and I'm just not in touch with it. But yeah, I think it's a great, I think it's a great idea to do it that way. And, you know, there are, and again, you know, you could graze any vineyard. It's just, you know, a vineyard that hasn't been specifically planned with animals in mind. There's just certain times of the year you couldn't be there, which would be, which would be tricky. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into too. I mean, I think your, your thoughts were about mental health were like 
amazing to me. I, I think it's one of those things that's kind of opening up in my experience in the regenerative ag community of like, oh, let's let's talk about this because we're not all okay. Like I think it's I think regenerative ag has a, a huge stress on marketing. Like we're all supposed to be marketing ourselves and and marketing our businesses and everyone's happy and the fields are green and the animals are healthy and we're healthy and our families are healthy and everything's fine. You know, and I think it's really important to talk about that. It's not like that, like that photograph was probably taken on one day of the, like I was, well, I always laugh of like those photographs that like when, what, what a farm actually looks like. And it's real for people too. Like the photograph might give you an idea, but what's actually happening is can be really different. So yeah, I wanted to just ask you like, what did it feel like to not be farming for a little while? Did you feel, I, it sounds like you had this sense of urgency, like I have to get back out there, but I have to work on myself first. But did you feel like in that time, when you were actually in that time, did you have enough gusto to be like, Katie, like you don't need to be farming right now. Like you're okay. Or did you kind of pull in friends or Ethan or, you know, anybody else to kind of be like, stay on track, like take care of yourself and, and be patient with this. Was that a really hard thing to do? It's a good question. I think I got there eventually. I, it took me several months and probably a lot of tears and time to get to the place where I was kind of in that it's actually a DBT thing, this like place of like radical acceptance of where I was and you know what I needed to do. And I think the the first three months and the last three months were probably the the trickiest bits in terms of like the urgency that I felt like going through like when I was kind of deep dark in it I was just deep dark in it but it was like that like going into it and then that emerging process that like where I started to really get that sense of impatience I was actually you know I'm very grateful I had some friends that put me up in Seattle I was living in their basement for almost four months when I was going through the Kibera application and like you know, and it was so, and it was there, you know, we were all kind of locked down together because someone in our little bubble was immunocompromised. So we were really locked down and like with their baby and the whole thing, we were kind of a little community and it was really nice. And I was so grateful to be there, but like, I just could feel myself really, you know, and I found little moments of sanity for myself. I would go out and I'd kind of urban forage and, you know, do, do, do what I could, but I was just, itching at that point, like that last three months that I was in Seattle, I was just itching hard to get back out and do the work. And people commented to me even recently, they're like, you know, Katie, you're always, you're, you're always smiling. I'm like, I'm happy to be here. I spent a lot of time in basements, like wishing, wishing I was in a place like this. And now I am in a place like this. And now, you know, not to say that there aren't very difficult, hard, long days, but I don't know, having known that, that I wanted to do something and at least been able to get this far feels really, really good. Did you set an amount of time before you took that break? Or did you just say, we're going to do this till it feels right to not do this anymore. You know, I didn't have a plan. And anyone who knows me well will tell you that's typical. I, I started doing it and, you know, it was six months into starting to do it that COVID, COVID happened and like the whole world was taking this whole dark night of the soul period. And I was like, join me, get in here. <laughs> Let's do it. You know, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a journey for sure. And one that I, you know, I feel very grateful to have grateful to have taken and to still be taking, obviously. You know, and that's the thing, is I still struggle with anxiety, you know, and it's not like I don't like have 
you know, struggles, you know, I wouldn't quite say daily anymore, but like it's, but certainly weekly, but you know, this, in this specific form of therapy just worked really well for me, you know, gave me the skills in order to like, be like, okay, like into, and to have these things happen less frequently, because I'm able to stay more present, I'm able to practice more gratitude and really finding joy in even when things are hard and finding like, what is like the thing I'm grateful for right now, what am I noticing, like, and staying as much as possible in the present moment, even when it's difficult. Yeah. Is, are there practices that you, you said you like practice gratitude and are there actual um, like habits that you practice at this point in time to keep your mental health strong, or at least some practices when you kind of feel that happening to kind of snap back and be like, you can do this. You got this. Stay on track. Is it sort of like taking breaks? Do you exercise? Do you like uh, journal? Do you, yeah. What are your sort of um, methods for that? It's interesting. Part of what I love about this work is I love how physical it is. You know, I was doing a lot of sprinting when I was living in the city, just that like sprinting is great for, for anxiety. It's like, honestly, sprinting in a cold shower will do almost any, will cure what ails like anxiety. Anyways. I love how physical the work we do is. And I love that it's outdoors working with my hands and my body and being present out in the world. You know, one thing I've really had to do as an apprentice is I'm doing a lot of things that make me uncomfortable all the time. I call it like when I was talking to our new first year apprentice, one of the things you really have to do when you're getting involved in this work, or I think it applies to a lot of things, is kind of learn to dance with discomfort and dance with fear because there's we're going to ask you to do things a lot that are going to be very uncomfortable that are maybe even going to be scary and probably are technically dangerous, <laughs> you know, you know, working around large groups of large animals and learning to, to dance with those things. And so like the uh, question, you know, if, if I get asked to do a job that makes me uncomfortable or to ride a horse I'm not comfortable on or, you know, whatever it is, first question I have to ask myself is, am I going to do it? Because at a certain level, I should just say, I don't feel like that's a good idea. You know, there are there is that moment where you have to like, own your own safety. So if I've crossed, if I decide, yes, I am going to do it, you know, and maybe I've had a conversation with my mentor about any tips, tricks, whatever it is, the the task, can you watch me do it the first time, whatever it is. The second thing, especially working with animals or getting on a flighty horse or working with cattle is, okay, I'm going to do this thing that makes me very nervous. Now, what am I going to do about my nervous system? Because animals respond to whatever you bring to them. And they make you honest about that. So like one of the kind of practices I have, if I'm like, for example, driving out to, you know, move a group of cattle that make me nervous or whatever is, it's a simple thing is I like to breathe out for eight and pause and then breathe in for four, pause, breathe out for eight and for four. You really, as long as you're exhaling more than you're inhaling, it actually calms your nervous system to, to be exhaling more than you're inhaling. I'm not saying I'm feeling great by the time I get there to show up to do this thing that makes me nervous, but my nervous system at least is like more cooperative, if that makes any, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's like, I think too, kind of coming to, cause I deal with issues like that too, just like actually having to calm my body down, even though my mind is like, you're fine, you're going to be okay, but your actual body's kind of freaking out more so. And I think too, as I deal with that, I realize like, it's okay to change your habits and your lifestyle to take care of yourself. This is not some problem to be stomped out and ignored. It's like, no, you're going to just need to live a little differently now. And that's okay. I 
take herbs that I never would have needed to take. But I used to just be that kind of person that just didn't need anything. It didn't need any supplements, didn't need any help with anything. And now I'm like, oh, I think I actually do need to have a journal, journal before bed every night and like practice these different things and pay attention to this instead of just assuming that if something feels different, it's it's wrong and you just need to ignore it. You might actually have a new lifestyle now that you're dealing with those things. And I think that comes up for a lot of apprentices being put in a situation like this for the first time that's really uncomfortable. They might actually have to practice some different, like their lifestyle might actually be different from now on (laughs) to cope with that. And that's okay. And that's a good thing, you know, as long as those are healthy habits. But yeah, so you would say like breathing, do you have any other methods of that you've changed in your lifestyle to make yourself sort of to ground yourself and put yourself back on track? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good question. Like I, said, I mentioned the gratitude. This is in line with the breathing, but I actually find singing very helpful. I, if I'm driving a tractor somewhere, thankfully no one could hear me and we're on 7,100 acres. The, the sheep don't seem to mind. So that's a really, <laughs> it's a really helpful thing. Actually, singing's really good. It's, it's that same concept as the exhaling, right? But I do try to journal. I actually was a pretty voracious journaler as a young person. I do try to try to journal. And just the stuff that happens every day is so interesting. I try to write even just like a little one sentence reflection. As my, my mom would say, write one true sentence about something that happened during during the day you just never you just never know I like to take photos too and even just you know going and appreciating this place this beautiful place that we live in literally just going for a walk uh, with my dog and being present and showing up that way too and I think another another thing that I try to practice is observation versus interpretation. And this is not necessarily, they, they talk about a different, this and DBT in a different way, but it's actually something my partner brought to me from the permaculture modality is what am I observing? And am I making interpretations about that? You know, you might say, oh, that's a weed. Well, that's an interpretation, you know, but that's a what I'm seeing is a green plant growing out of bare soil, you know? And so I try to, you know, interpersonally, especially like remain in that, like, what am I observing? What am I interpreting and knowing the difference? I think that's been a big, a big journey for me. And it's given me more space to, to validate myself and to just get my ego out of the way, (laughs) get my freaking ego out of the way and just be embrace being a learner. And I think that's been a really tough thing. It's just, I was telling Brandy, our first year apprentice, I, when we interviewed her, I told her, I was like, being an apprentice is doing stuff you're bad at all day long, often with an audience. You know? know? (laughs) What was your first, um, what was your first season as an apprentice on the Feral Ranch? What was, what was that like? I mean, you'd never really worked with cattle before. We spent two weeks woofing with some folks who had some cows, but other than that, had basically not, not at all. It was definitely different, you know, working and, and goats, you know, I'd never worked with goats and we have a very large, small room in herd. But yeah, I hadn't worked with cattle and, you know, that was part of like kind of what I 
was talking about, about like, you know, learning to kind of dance, dance with discomfort is, you know, working with large groups of large animals, you know, especially like working in pins and like sorting and doing all these sorts of just very necessary jobs. It's intimidating. It's definitely intimidating. But one thing I've really appreciated, you know, we were the first apprentices here. We were the sort of test test cases. And, you know, John, John and Pete and John was, you know, really with us day to day. And Pete was kind of like always there, you know, if we needed him. And Pete's lived on this ranch his entire life, and you know, has all this kind of ancestral knowledge about it. But like day to day, John was kind of our, our main mentor and John Wagner. And John's an incredible teacher, which I feel really grateful for, because definitely Woofing taught me that not everyone who's a good rancher or farmer is a good teacher. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, John really gave us a lot of room. He gave us room to fail and to fail safely, which I think is actually a great way to learn. And we, we tease him a lot because he said one time it was so good. And we quoted back at him all the time. If you're not getting the results you want, you're probably getting the experience that you need. And it's so true. Whoa, I'm gonna have to listen back to this podcast and write that one down again. That's amazing. <laughs> John, brilliant. Yeah, no, uh, shout out to John Wagner. You're brilliant. Sorry. And you know, it's just been it's been great to be like, this is far and away the healthiest place I've ever worked and like that, you know, when we things have gone terribly wrong. We had this group of taken Corriente, 500 pairs of Corriente cattle last year, 300 of which had been roped out. And we were really short staffed and just never really got to properly settle them. And we run a lot of stuff with electric fent, like a lot of poly around here, which you've ever dealt with poly and horned cattle. It's a whole, (laughs) it's a whole thing. We had at one point like a breakout and we were behind on fencing. So they broke out into like 800 acres of canyon country. And we had a we had a Kansas state senator with a big tour group coming the next day for us to like talk about regen ag. <laughs> and we were like up at like four in the morning the next morning, like doing our best to gather these, you know, real, what one of the cowboys who comes and works brandings and stuff with us called throwback cattle is what he called them. That, that you know, they're the way cattle used to be is kind of what he was getting at. So, you know, tr- trying to get them all you know, back in and we're, filthy we've you know I've run the UTV into a rock so I'm on foot you know it was just a just a mess and we close the gate and John turns back to us and goes learning Learn. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing and that's oh. kind of been the attitude ever since I've gotten here I'm not saying that we don't all lose our temper sometimes but like on the whole it has been like the attitude as long as I've been here and I feel so grateful for it. I am definitely the kind of person I think who could have washed out if I had been in a less supportive environment for us to be able to usually, you know, move very quickly from things be like to like panic, panic, like get it, you know, get it fixed to, oh my gosh, okay, it's funny now. (laughs) You know, that laughter is really therapeutic. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Tell us more about if folks haven't listened to Pete Farrell on the Working Cows podcast. There's one to go listen to, and Pete will kind of describe the ranch in more detail. But yeah, tell us more about the the ranch itself. There's sort of the structure of the feral ranch, and then is it 4L grazing? Is the contracted right company separated? And then um, yeah, so tell us about the sort of the business structure, and then tell us about your part of Kansas. Like, what's it like living there, and and what have you sort of how have your um, ideas about Kansas changed after being there for a little while now? Basically, 4L Grazing is the grazing company that has a rolling five-year lease to the Feral Ranch. 
And yeah, and it's basically the management company. Pete's very quotable. Pete, Pete will often say, no margin, no mission, you know, that if we want to keep doing this work, at the end of the day, we have to write the check. We have to be able to pay, pay the bills at the end of the day. So how do we how do we have the margin? And John kind of calls it like the three-legged stool. It's like the social and the economic and the environmental. And like, if one of those things is out of balance, you're, you know, going to tip over, basically. All those things have to be working together. So tell us about the part of Kansas that you're in. I don't, I don't know much about Kansas. And I honestly, like I have no idea, but you were kind of saying earlier, we were talking about how it was just absolutely stunning. And so tell us more about sort of how your mindset changed around how great Kansas can be. The the Flint Hills are, it's the largest remaining contiguous tall grass prairie in North America. There's less than, it's either 5% or 1%, and I'm not remembering which number it is. There's very little of the remaining tall grass prairie left. So, I mean, this is a highly unique ecosystem. Most of the tall grass prairie was plowed really, really early into settlement, but because the Flint Hills, the soils are super shallow, which creates really interesting management challenges. And they're rocky, rocky, rocky. I mean, it is like a big rock rock pile out there sometimes. Basically, this land just didn't allow itself to be plowed. So we're managing this, he calls it kind of a, a lasting remnant. It's these last remnants of the tall grass prairie in the Flint Hills. Tell us more about the community of people. Like, have you sort of found a social community in the ranching world or farming world around you? Yeah, there's some really, there's actually a lot of people doing very innovative things here. It's really, really incredible to have gotten to meet so many folks. And and one thing that is kind of unique about this area is because of the nature of the tall grass prairie, there is a, a big conservation culture, which comes with its own flip side too. But there are a lot of people that care about the environment here. People have different ideas about what that actually looks like, but there are people from all different political spectrums, social spectrums who all really care about the prairie. And that's really a great way to draw people together is care for the prairie, which is really cool. But yeah, and like, honestly, we have such a sweet little, sweet little community people, you know, on the ranch too. So I feel really grateful that I, you know, I feel like I kind of get to live the best of both worlds that like I get to like have all these cool people like that I hang out with and work with every day, but then to also get to live in a rural place, which is really unique. Yeah. Tell us about the apprenticeship program. So for folks that don't know, so the the NAP program runs in New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. And we have some sites in California that we've had for a long time. Generally, we stay in the Intermountain West. So like, we only have so many staff people. So Pete Farrell has been over here in Kansas, like trying to get into our program. But we he's I think you guys are like nine hours away from our closest employee, which is me. So Unfortunately, we haven't been able to get him onto our program, so he created his own. So he essentially used our 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 mentor training calls to create his own. And so you're in charge of it now. Tell us more about the apprenticeship program that you've sort of formed. Yeah. So you know we're in beta. We've had a very brave uh, first year apprentice willing to come and be with us starting in March. Brandy McCoy, she's awesome. I'm and I'm also still a second year apprentice. So we're figuring out how all of that works. It was a uh, Really, Brady and I had a really cool moment, actually. We were out moving. We just had this horsemanship clinic for apprentices with our good friends, the Hoys, who are, have an incredible ranch about an hour and a half from here. And, you know, we'd been doing um, a lot of stuff on horseback lately. And Brandy's 
she's done a little bit of work with cattle before this, but not a lot. And we, we take stockmanship, like that's one thing our community takes very seriously is good stockmanship. And we all have a slightly different take on how it's done, but the, the good handling of animals we take very seriously. And so we were out just kind of doing some cleanup of the pairs that we have. And Brandy and I went out together and moved these cows on foot. And it was funny. It was like a highlight of, of both of our weeks just to go out together. And for me to explain what I knew, which was like, so affirming to be like, oh, you know, and to be in real time, you know, with our bodies, talking through what we're doing, seeing what's happening. Oh, that's not exactly how that's going to go. Okay, let's change our angle slightly. Let's change our speed. Let's change how we're stepping. Kind of good stockmanship. It almost looks like if you watch someone do it, it almost looks like someone waltzing. It's really, really fun. And it was fun for us to do that together, you know, and to be her fresher and like, you know, taking it all in. Me, very much still chewing on it and learning, but then also trying to impart what I did know. It's settled adage about like the best way to learn is to teach. And I really believe in that actually, especially just what I've seen in the last several months that Brandy's been here. Like it's been incredible for me as a, not just trying to start this apprentice program, but just being a second year apprentice and getting to experience that has been awesome. But about the program more generally, so it is very much modeled after the new agrarian program. It is about nine months. It is similar in the sense that we have a certain commitment of contact hours that you are directly mentored by either John, who's our ranch manager, John Wagner, Susan Elder, who's our assistant manager, or a second year apprentice. We um, do do a small cash stipend, and then you also get a certain amount of money stipended every month to go toward educational things when it can be. Like there's a tall grass range school that happens every year. That's real cool. Yeah. And so, you know, but all apprentices are going to have different interests. For example, part of my thing that I've been doing as an apprentice is I've been training a stock dog. I have a a pup that I got. And so I'm going, the branch is paying for me to go to a clinic in May. I'm taking her to this cow dog clinic and going to do some work with her there. And yeah, and Brandy, who is our new apprentice, she is really interested in doing like consulting, specifically consulting around soil. So there's a lot of like soil specific things that she's using her budget to go to. So everyone gets basically like an educational budget for like electives they want to do on top of the sort of standard stuff. What's the timeline? So you said that Brandy started in March. Um, When do your applications open next? Our application will open again about the first week of November. Um, I don't have an exact date yet, but yeah, similar to the NAP timeline, we open up about the first week of November. We ideally would like to start someone next year. And this is something we've learned. I think ideally we will try to start someone next year about the second or third week of February, depending. Our season kicks off a little bit earlier, I think, than a lot of other sites, just in terms of, you know, getting people settled, like allowing people some time to breathe and be here before we get so busy. I think would be really, really positive. So that's definitely next year. We're hoping we'll open applications the first week of November, probably close them right around the new year, and then be reaching out to people after that. And I, I want to just throw this out into the universe because I don't know what to do with this, but it's actually a conversation Susan and I have been having recently that I don't know what to do with. Sort of the like privilege inherent in the apprentice model. Like You know, that not everyone can go, you know, get paid so little to go work and get the work experience. And I really want to figure out a way to make apprenticeships more accessible for someone who maybe wasn't born into this or doesn't feel like they 
fit for, you know, whatever reason that they feel like, oh, I don't think I could pursue that. How do we make this accessible? And I just want to throw that out into the universe because I don't have an answer. Yeah, it, I I totally hear you. We have we've had some really deep conversations at, at the New Agrarian program too. Because yeah, you're right. It is this super privileged position that people get in where they can afford to make pretty you know <laughs> subpar wages for a little while in order to hope that in the future they'll be they'll be okay and they can get a better job. But you're right. And yeah, thanks for saying that. I think um, that's a conversation that needs to happen more. And so, yeah, we will, we'll continue having that. And maybe at the conference this year, we'll get into the nitty gritty because that's super important. And I don't think any of us has an answer by now because it's clearly not happening. I know for me, like just doing this work, you know, and it's one of the things that's so critical, like doing this work is so grounding, like just the actual doing of it, but then like zooming out on like the larger mission. And I think it's actually, it's something I really appreciate about my upbringing, something my parents really instilled in me is the importance of living a mission driven life. It's the it's the key to like feeling like you're a part of something larger than yourself, I think is really beneficial. We talked about earlier in this conversation, taking care of yourself and not just taking care of the mission that like you need to take care of yourself in order to take care of the mission, whatever that looks like for you. One of my one of my favorite books, probably my favorite book is uh, called Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins. And I read it probably once every 18 months. But there's a character in it who's kind of obsessed with this idea of saving, saving the planet. And at a certain point in the book, she says, you know, what's the she's about to lose this person she cares about. And she says, you know, what's the point of saving, saving the earth if we lose the moon. And what she means by that is like the kind of darker juices, the, you know, the laying out in the hammock and reading the book, maybe it's housewives and wine with your girlfriends. I don't know, like whatever, whatever it is you need to do to also taking a walk, like, I think a lot of people in our generation, we all grew up with this, who are doing this work. There's that sense of urgency, which I appreciate and I feel, but I think we've also all got to take a moment to smell the roses because at a certain point, we're not trying to save the earth. The earth's going to be just fine. If humans go away, the earth will be just fine. Really what we're trying to figure out is, is humanity worth saving? Are we viable? You know, it's kind of to me like this, this main question, my partner you know, as a bit of a philosopher and writes about that a lot. And so again, it's like that behavior and living in that way that we're in community and also just allowing ourselves to be human, whatever that means for you. It's funny. So like one of my goals with this apprenticeship program, part of it is, you know, not completely altruistic. It's a way for me to stay. It's a way for me to stay and be involved and do what it is that I love to do, which is be out on land with people and learning every day and learning from the lands and each other and the animals. So honestly, part of it's not it's not completely altruistic in that sense. It's like a it's a real sanity grounding thing for me. And, you know, I really would love to see this program be perpetual. We're very interested in possibly expanding and having a couple partner ranches in the area again, kind of like the new agrarian program does. You know, I want us to really think about what we can do well. And I think just us being here right exactly at this moment with one apprentice is something we can do well. But I would like to think about kind of like what you guys have done with the new agrarian program. How do we link up all the islands? Because there are, there are quite a few in this area. There are quite a few islands of people doing really cool things. And it would be fun, I think, and great for the community to have more interesting, to insert more young people into this area. 
That is one thing about this area and about Kansas generally. And I've heard it referred to as the brain drain, you know, that happens that like, you know, the young people are leaving these sorts of states and leaving rural communities. And, and I understand it in a certain sense that a lot of industrial agriculture is like mechanized, you know, how few employees can you have? And that's the only way we can make a profit. And I'm now sort of of the mind of, you know, how do we, how do we basically build more opportunities on the same land base for as many people as maybe not as possible? I don't know. But how do we, how do we basically like revitalize rural economy as we're also trying to revitalize the land and revitalize ourselves? You know, it's that holistic management concept of holes within holes, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you know, instead of how can we squeak out a tiny profit for one family, on this piece of land, what other options are there for hosting multiple people slash families and building the business around that so that it, so that it pays everybody, but everybody's bringing a lot to the table, but also there's a lot getting back to those people and building up that team. And that's just, I think that's just strategy, right? Like there's just, there are market answers to that. And there are just different creative strategies that somewhere deep in Pete's mind, he can <laughs> probably figure out better than I can. But that's my that's my ultimate question I've been kind of chewing on lately is like, how, where does that money come from? But maybe it works. And Pete's doing giving his best shot, which is awesome. So it's cool to see you guys growing. And, and yeah, so for folks listening, I mean, if you're in the Kansas area, and if you're interested in, in being an apprentice, um, this is a sweet opportunity. And I see it kind of blossoming over there. And I'm super happy for you guys. Yeah, thank you. I'd say, you know, if you're in the Kansas area and you're interested in having an apprentice, call us. But wherever you are, otherwise, feel free to reach out, you know, even before November. We are working on a website. Website will hopefully happen before we open applications again. I'm a millennial, so we have an Instagram. (laughs) It's at Feral Ranch. I guess the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, one of the things I've really appreciated about Pete's ethic, about this program and about the ranch generally is he's always said the ranch is a place where people get to be themselves. And I've really seen that enacted, you know, I've seen that enacted over and over again. And that he's been appreciative and humble about like the fresh perspectives and energy. And and he said too, you know, you guys are going to learn more from my mistakes than you are from my successes. Yeah, I just feel very humbled to be in a place like this. We'll look forward to meeting anyone who wants to join us next year. Well, wonderful. Well, my last question is, I mean, this could be for your future apprentices at your ranch or any of the, any folks who are listening or any of our NAP apprentices, what's a, what's a piece of advice that you have for, for apprentices working on any farm operation? And there's a lot, but do you have like a nice nugget of knowledge to pass down? I would say one thing is don't, don't be afraid to try things. I sometimes find myself being like, oh, I wish I had found this sooner and not when I, you know, not when I was in my late 20s and I'm 32 now. But I guess, you know, but there's so much that I now reflect on that I appreciate about my journey, even if it was very nonlinear. The fact that I, you know, now I'm trying to develop this curriculum for this program and I made curriculums, you know, for the after school program when I was right out of college. Never thought that was going to apply to anything. 
one thing you do in a winery a lot is you drive forklifts. And, you know, so I like really enjoy doing little tractor jobs now because I've, you know, driven forklifts a lot. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. You never, you never know what experience you get is going to apply to whatever it is you end up doing or do next. My aunt June used to, used to say that you need to repot yourself every, every seven years or so, you know, that you use a, you're a plant, you get like root bound, you know, I guess what I mean by that is like, don't be afraid to just like try something new because experiences build off one another and usually not in ways that we understand until we look back, back on things. I've been so appreciative in this last year of my life of being a part of a community where people have a lot of different skills. Not that I'm not also gaining a lot of skills. I'm gaining a ton of skills, but it also allows me to a have that safety net of like, Oh, I can try something. Cause if you know, things go terribly wrong. You know, there's people here to back me up so I could try something or not. But also being able to let everyone kind of have their gifts too. And like let everyone, if they want to stay in their lane and then if they want to, you know, get out of their lane, you know, there's support for that. But like letting everyone bring, bring what they have to the table, you know, and learn from one another. And I think that being a part of that community, if you can, is really, really powerful. Well, thank you so much for all of this is wonderful. We went into so many different things and and thank you so much for, first of all, just being vulnerable. Like we talked about some pretty tough things. So thank you so much for just being honest and like being willing to talk about it because it just takes a couple of really brave people to start the conversation and, and spark that for someone, somebody else. So thank you so much for all of your advice and, and for just being here today. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. Thanks for having me. biggest thanks to Katie for joining us on the podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Feral Ranch, you can check out our show notes. We've got a brochure about the apprenticeship. And while we're waiting on their website, you can check out their Instagram at Feral Ranch. If you're looking for a way to get involved in regenerative agriculture, whether that's through a job, internship, educational event, or conference, you've come to the right place. Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share opportunities with our community through this podcast and our monthly newsletter. The Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership is in the process of hiring a full-time Rio Grande coordinator to support partners in advancing policies and programming to direct federal and state resources to support priority watershed restoration and other multi-benefit infrastructure projects in New Mexico and Colorado's San Luis Valley. This position would ideally be based remotely in Santa Fe, New Mexico region with travel around northern New Mexico and Colorado. For more information, check out www.trcp.org backslash employment. The state of New Mexico is hiring a full-time Farm to Senior Center food security coordinator to enrich the connection that communities have with fresh, healthy food and local food producers by changing food purchasing and education practices at senior centers. This position includes coordinating the development of a senior's nutrition program, and developing statewide nutrition education for senior centers and its important work across the state of New Mexico. To apply, go to the State of New Mexico's Careers webpage.
and be sure to check out Kivira's incredible list of educational events this summer that are in person. We have field days and workshops on biochar, water and wildlife management, and other soil health events. You can check out the list of events at kiviracoalition.org backslash events. Every month, we include job postings in our monthly newsletter. So if you don't already receive our monthly newsletter, visit kiviracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or to read any of our previous newsletters, visit kiviracoalition.org backslash newagrarian backslash resources. Have a job opportunity to share yourself? Send it to newagrarian at kiviracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land. Thank you.